0: Those people who are closest to me, they know that I have a particular fondness for sports. I like to play sports. I like to watch sports. I like to talk about sports. I mean, when I'm playing sports, you know, going back to my youth, remembering what it felt like to hit a baseball on the sweet spot. Or one of my favorite things, which was to be hanging on the rim right after a nice two-hand dunk. Now, I know that some of you may be looking at me saying, I know Pastor Aaron did not just say that he dunked a basketball. But let me assure you, playing on the parks of Muskegon, I earned myself the nickname White Chocolate as the only white guy down there who could dunk. And so, yes, I know what the feeling is, the feeling of joy to be able to dunk a basketball. But I don't like just to play sports. I love to watch sports. I love to go walk into Tiger Stadium and smell the grass. And I have a weakness for, you know, Various kinds of cooked meats, and they're all smelling around. And just that good feeling you have being with friends and family, watching a game, going to a high school football game, watching March Madness, which, by the way, I can't bring up March Madness without bringing up my favorite team, which everybody who knows me knows is Michigan State. So, you know, I love me some Michigan State, yes. Uh oh. But I'm warning you right now if you're clapping for this, the Lord may be speaking to you later. Uh, <laughs> I love Michigan State. I have a particular fondness for this fellow named Sparty. And I also really love this other guy. His name is Tom Izzo. So uh, I married into a family full of Wolverine fans, and they're nice people. They treat me well most of the time. Um, but, you know, Michigan, oftentimes, yes, I'll give you some props, oftentimes through my life, Michigan's had their way with us during football season, but I always at least had Izzo and that basketball team to fall back on in the winter. Except for this year. <laughs> this is the first year since I was about 10 years old that uh, Michigan had a better team. No doubt about it. Yes, I'm giving you props. Uh, don't clap because the Lord will be speaking to you as well. Um, <laughs> but, I, you know, the reality was is I didn't take it so well. I didn't like it. I didn't appreciate it. And uh, I ran into a little problem. On Easter... Now let me reiterate this. On Easter this year, the primary emotion I was feeling was frustration and anger. The reason because the Wolverines had advanced and my Spartans had lost and I knew that basically all my Michigan friends were going to be messing with me nonstop. So what I did was, what every mature Christian does, I decided I would in a healthy way cope with my anger. So I insulted my brother-in-law and didn't invite him over to my house to watch the game. It's true. I'm quite ashamed of it. My wife may have rebuked me, and uh, you know, it, it is what it is. The question is is, what's wrong with that picture, right? I mean, I love Jesus. I'm a Christian. Uh, I'm a pastor, at least hopefully after today. Uh, I do have some form of spiritual maturity. So why did something like sports have power over me to drive me to the place where I became so angry that I insulted somebody that I loved? Why is that? Well, needless to say, sin probably was the reason. So as Christians, we have two things we usually do when we notice sin. I, as a regular Christian, did them both. The first thing I did is I made excuses for my sin. Well, clearly I was tired. I stayed up late watching games last night, so I was weak. And then I didn't have the strength to hold my anger in. Or one of my uh, favorite ones is, well, you know, Wolverine fans are rather annoying, so he had it coming anyway, right? (laughs) But the reality of that is, is that that wasn't the truth, and I knew it. So I went to step two, I rationalized my sin. I said, well, I lose my temper sometimes, but not like I did 10 years ago. I'm doing way better, no problems here. Or one that's unique to me, but we all have uh, various rationalizations that are unique to ourselves is, here's mine. If people only knew how hard it is to be a pastor and have to be on your best behavior all the time. I mean, if I could just show up to the March Madness event and chuck something at the TV just once, then maybe I wouldn't lose my temper at my brother. The problem is, is that those aren't the real answers. The reality is, is that something had gained power over my life. And do you know what that's called? It's called idolatry. It's called idolatry. You see, sports on their own are good, but when sports or anything gain power over your life and affect the way that you feel or the way that you act or they gain power over you, they become an idol. They become an idol. You see, as a pastor, a lot of times I get these conversations. People will come in, and they'll be struggling, and we'll have these conversations, and will talk to people who are hurting, cheating, lusting, worrying, drugging, drinking, lying, stealing, or hiding. And they'll come in, and they'll say, well, if I could just get this thing under control, I'm sure I'd be fine. If I could just stop cheating, if I could just stop lusting. The problem is, is that those aren't the real sin that you have to go after. That's the symptom of a much greater sin, And the much greater sin is called idolatry. And you're saying to yourself, well, idolatry? You mean like this guy here? I mean, this is Old Testament stuff, right? I mean, I don't have any of these back at my house. The problem is, is that what if the idols that we have now look more like something like this? Here's an idol for you. Little Spartans, little tigers, little fishing love to eat me some comfort foods. What if we build our own idols out of things that we have given power over ourselves? So, in my experience as a pastor, whether I'm talking to a believer or whether I'm sharing the gospel with a non-believer, very, very, very rarely, like definitely less than 10% of the time, people will say, I've never heard anyone say this. Well, you know, idolatry is the primary issue in my life, and if I could just get over those darn idols, I'm sure I'd be fine, right? But in reality, at the base, at the root, if you dig deeper, what you find is is that idolatry is. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at idolatry deeper, see how it happens, what it looks like, and by God's grace, maybe we can learn a little bit more how to defeat idolatry in our own lives. An idol is basically this. Anything that draws you away from God, something that you make sacrifices to or for, something that you devote excess amounts of time to, something that has power over you, it's ultimately, though, something that you willingly submit to. Willingly submit to. So now if you want to turn uh, to the book of Exodus in, in the Ten Commandments, I want to look at some of these commandments real quick. And what we'll do is we're going to learn something about the way God feels about idolatry. Now, there's ten commandments, and I think all of us can agree that they're all important. For example, participate with me for a moment. Thou shall not kill. Is that an important one? Yeah. yeah. All right. Hey, if you're married, no adultery. I think that's pretty important. Yeah. yeah. Hey, if you own a business, don't steal. Is that an important one? Yeah. Yes. All of these are vitally and just tremendously important. You can't overstate how important the Ten Commandments are. And with that in mind, I want to read you commandment number one and commandment number two. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first one. So the very first thing that God wants to make sure that we know is that you should have no gods before me. And that doesn't mean just no gods that stand in front of me. That means gods, there is no other gods. There's no gods allowed in my presence. I'm the only god. Not gods just before me, but even gods around me. There is no other god. Thou shall have no gods before me. Second one, you shall not make for yourself an image or a likeness of anything that is in heaven or above, or that is on earth below, or that is in the water under the sea, and you shall not bow down to them or serve them. That's the second commandment. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this before, but what I learned is this. The first two commandments, they're essentially the same thing. The first one is, no gods before me. The second is, don't make any gods. And I'm not sure about you, but when I see this, it makes me think, you know, I think God may have something particularly against idolatry. He may think this is a particularly important issue. I mean, if someone were to ask me, Aaron, make a top 10 list. How about your top 10 favorite foods? Well, the very first food that I would say would be pizza. And I would say that first because right when someone asks me what my favorite food is, my favorite food is the first thing I think of. Now here's another question. If you were to make a top 10 list of your favorite foods, and you could just have 10, would you repeat the same thing over again? So Aaron, what are your top 10 favorite foods? Well, I like pizza, and then I like pizza, right? I mean, would you do it that way? Well, I don't think so, but you know what? God has chosen to give us this commandment essentially twice. And the reality is is that God has a top 10 list. (laughs) God's top ten list is the Ten Commandments. And he says, no idols, don't make idols. He's doubled up, if you will. Now here's another question. Which of the other commandments are repeated? None. None. So I think that shows us that there's a particular interest that we should pay to this sin of idolatry. So God says, no idols, don't make idols. And let me tell you why I think that God is so focused to to teach it this way. I'll give you two reasons. The first is this. God absolutely, positively, above all other sins, hates idolatry first. And second, as human beings created in the image of God, it is not possible for us to sin without first committing idolatry. See, what happens is, is when we sin, we say, "Uh, I know that this shouldn't happen, but, and I know that you're God and everything, but, I'll be God right now, and I'm going to do it. That's what idolatry is. It's when you place something else in God's place, whether it be your own will or a piece of creation, whatever it is. And in Exodus 20, verse 5, we find out why particularly God hates idolatry so much. He says, you shall not bow down, you shall not serve. And then he says, for the Lord your God is a jealous God. So God is a jealous God. And quite frankly, most people do not like the fact that God is a jealous God. Once I heard Oprah Winfrey in an interview say, when I heard my preacher tell me that God was a jealous God, that's the day I decided I did not want to be a Christian. Who would want to serve a jealous God? But the reality is, is the reason that people feel that way is because they have an earthly view, an earthly image of what jealousy is. So what I want to do quickly is I want to try to redefine what jealousy means. There's a gentleman named Paul Coppin. He wrote a book called, Is God a Moral Monster? And this is how he describes jealousy. A wife who doesn't get jealous and angry when another woman is flirting with her husband isn't really committed to the marriage relationship. Outrage, pain, anguish, these are the appropriate responses to such deep violation. God isn't some abstract entity or impersonal principle. We should be amazed... That the creator of the universe would so deeply connect himself to human beings that he would open himself up to the sorrow and anguish in the face of human rejection and betrayal. Think about this. The God of the universe who created every single thing by nothing more than the power of his word has subjected himself to the pain and the sorrow of rejection and abandonment by us whom he loves. See, what jealousy does is it doesn't say God is this angry, jealous God. What God, what it says is that God loves us so much, that he treasures us so much that he's actually subjected himself to the pain of when we turn our backs on God, or when we go worship at the altar of a different God. That's what God's jealousy means. But for warning, that jealousy leads to anger. Rightfully so, Deuteronomy 4.24 says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So let me make this clear as to not confuse anyone in here. The Lord God positively, absolutely, and passionately hates idolatry, and his anger against idolatry is so fierce and so terrible that it should make all of us tremble in our boots today. Now you might be saying, all right, Aaron, I know that this idolatry stuff, like, this is Old Testament stuff. So is there anything in the New Testament or anything that you could show me that would apply to my life today? Because I don't have a statue made of stone in my house. Well, please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. That's Colossians 3, 5 and 6, page 834 in the Bible that the church provides. And I want to show you what Paul, the Apostle Paul, has to say about idolatry. Here Paul is going to be giving instruction to the church, the New Testament church, which is us. Paul says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, that covers everything, which is idolatry. And he also mentions greed. Then he says, Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. See, What we have to remember is is that when Paul is talking to the New Testament church, he doesn't say, put away your idols made of stone and wood. He takes things like lust, greed, evil desires, the passions of your flesh, and he says those things are idolatry. Not statues of wood and stone, but the gods of your heart. The things that govern your passions. Now, sometimes in the youth group, I give these things which I call pastor hints. So here's a pastor hint. It's a good one, too. The Bible never, ever, 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 ever gives suggestions. So the Bible never says something like this. You should consider repenting of your sin if it makes you feel okay, because God would appreciate that. Right? It doesn't say, husbands, husbands. Consider loving your wives, for that may possibly work out well for you. And it doesn't say, take your idols and just put them aside for a season. So let's look back at Colossians 3, verse 5, and see what Paul says we should do with our idols. He says, put them to death, therefore. I don't know about you, but sometimes with my kids, when I'm serious, I'm like, hey, don't do that. And then they're like, oh, are you serious? And I'll be like, I'm serious. And then they'll be like, okay, he's serious, you know. <laughs> Here's something that I don't say. I don't even know if I've ever been this serious. Nehemiah, put that toy to death. <laughs> right? But what is the Apostle Paul saying to show how serious he is about this sin of idolatry? Does he say, I'm serious, don't do this? or did He says, put to death, therefore. Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which are idolatry. And why does Paul say it? Why is Paul so serious? Well, look at verse 6. It said, Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. This is not a suggestion, it's not a game. And it's not time to do that game that we play where we compare ourselves to our spouse or our neighbor or like the guy who talks too much in Sunday school class, right? This is the time for us to look into our own hearts. So what I want to do for the rest of this service is, is I want to ask you guys to participate with me in something. Would you this morning allow the Holy Spirit access to look in and to see if you may have an idol? Would you do that with me? Say yes. Okay, it's good. It's a Christian church. We're going to do it, (laughs) all right? Now, I have to start from the beginning and tell you that before we get started in this little process, I can't stand on the stage and say, you have this idol, and you have this idol, and you have this idol, but you want to know who can? God God can. That's right. God can do it. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a little, let's call it a idolatry diagnostic tool. We're going to look at six questions. And we're going to let God examine our hearts to see if we may have erected an idol in his place. So I'm going to ask six questions. They're in your notes if you want to take notes. And here's the first question. What do you complain about the most? Maybe this week you can ask your wife, your husband, someone who's close to you, a co-worker, hey, what do I complain about the most? Because here's the reality. If you constantly complain about something, it may have power over your life. If you're constantly complaining about your financial situation, money may have become your God. If you're constantly complaining to someone about your sexual life at home, maybe sex has become too important to you. If you're constantly complaining about, oh, your sports team or your coach or recruiting, maybe sports has become too important. Let me give you a clue on this one. If what we complain about the most isn't this? Say for example, you know, I can't believe how bad people are profaning the name of the Holy God. If that's not the type of thing we're complaining about the most, maybe something else has gotten power into our life that shouldn't. What we need to do is we need to ask ourselves, what am I complaining about so much? What do I complain about the most? And then we need to say, what's wrong with this picture? What's wrong with this picture? That's the first question. I want you to work on this right now and then this week. God wants to speak to us. Question two, where do we make our financial sacrifices? Matthew 6, 21 says, For wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your bank statement says a lot about who your God is. If you don't think so, let's look at it this way. If you would be ashamed to take your bank statement and show it to the most mature Christian person that you know, your finances may have gotten a hold of you and they may have gotten your heart too. And you say, well, but Aaron, that travel soccer league that costs $2,000 is so important. Or if you knew what neighborhood we lived in, you'd have to remodel every five years. We got to keep up or else people are going to say bad things about us. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Look at your finances. Look at your tithing statement. Look at your life and ask yourself, is there anything wrong with this picture? Question three, what worries you? What worries you the most? When you're laying in bed, when you're by yourself, which things do you find yourself dwelling on? Is it school? Is it work? Maybe achievement has become your idol, or your God. Is it your relationships with other people? Maybe what other people think about you has become your God. Let me ask you this, young or old, ever worried about retirement before? Do you think it's possible that in America we've bowed our knee to the God of comfort? Do you think it's possible? Suggestion. If we stopped obsessing over earthly things and started obsessing over Jesus Christ, the gospel, and God's kingdom, do you think we'd worry as much? Philippians 4 6 says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and supplications, make your requests known to God, and that God will give you the peace that surpasses all understanding. What are we so worried about? The reason we're worried is because we're focusing on things that aren't God. So we need to ask ourselves, What am I worrying about? And then we need to say, What's wrong with this picture? Fourth question. Where do you go when you're hurting, or where is your safe place? Imagine you just had the worst day ever at school or work. You come home, you put down your briefcase or your backpack, and you go where? To the fridge? To the golf course with a cigar? Bottle of wine? Do you get on uh, social media and get on Facebook and Twitter and text all your friends to make yourself feel better first? What do we do? Where do you go when you're down? Well, let me give you a clue. Again, if the first place as Christians that we don't go is not the throne room of Jesus Christ, God the Savior King, who waits in the Holy of Holies, waiting for us to plead our case before God the Father, we may have an idol in our lives. We may have an idol in our life. Psalm 46.1 says that God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. So when we're troubled, where do we go? Prayer? Do we go to our knees or do we go somewhere else? Because if we're not going to our knees and we're not going to the king, we may have an idol in our lives. We need to look at that and ask what's wrong with this picture. Question five. Question five. What makes you mad? What makes you mad? So I just told you one of mine. I was walking through a nice Easter season. Right away I got hot under the collar as soon as those Wolverine guys started messing with me. And I know how dumb that sounds, and trust me, it's literally embarrassing. But you want to know what? When you're doing good, what's that one thing that when people bring up just instantly takes you to the next level? Let me ask you this. How do you guys like what's going on in politics these days? How do you like Republicans? How do you like Democrats? Does that make you mad at all? If it does, maybe control has become your God. Are you so competitive that when you go play a basketball game at the gym, that you can't lose without chucking a basketball across the court? Maybe being the best is your idol. How do you feel when people disrespect you or when somebody cuts you off in traffic and doesn't give you your way? Could it be that the greatest and the oldest idol in all the Bible, the idol of me, is ruling your life? We need to ask ourselves, what do I get mad about? What's my hot button issue? And if my hot button issue isn't like, there's people going to hell right now, then maybe we've got our priorities out of whack and maybe we've moved an idol into God's place. And the final question, what are your dreams? What do you fantasize about? What do you find yourself daydreaming about? Do you dream about money? Do you dream about fame? Do you dream about power? Do you dream about respect? Do you dream about sexual experiences? What thoughts have a grip on your mind when no one else is around and you're free to think and wander where you want to go? Because if it's not things like... God, heaven, Christ, the work of Christ, preaching the gospel, God's kingdom, God's glory, then we may have allowed an idol into our life and we may be dreaming about something that is actually hurting us, not helping us. We need to ask ourselves, what am I dreaming about? What do I fantasize about? Is it being a pro sports player? Is it being the CEO? Is it just having that one person just talk to me like I'm a man for once? Dang it all, right? Or is it God in his kingdom? Is it to see your cousin come to faith? Is it to see your grandma come to faith? What are we dreaming about? We need to ask ourselves that. Proverbs 27:19 says, "As face is reflected in the water, imagine yourself looking into a pond that's completely crystal-clear and completely calm. Proverbs says, "As your face is reflected in the water, so the heart." reflects the real person. What you dream about shows what you care about, and what you care about may become your God. So I'm just going to be honest with you guys. If you're anything like me, you probably need help. (laughs) So I studied idolatry all week downstairs in my office. Let me explain to you what that's like. You ever seen a Mack truck? Imagine getting smacked over by one about three times a day. Okay, That's what it feels like. The fact of the matter is, is that our culture, our world, our city, our state, and even our own personal lives in this God-honoring church, which it is, is cluttered with idols all over the place, everywhere. We need help, and we need grace. But thanks be to God that we serve a God who is gracious and who is loving and who is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in time of need. See, the answer to our idolatry problem is actually found right where we are in the Bible. So if you're still open to Colossians 3, I want you to go backwards about four verses to Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Paul's going to tell us, and you know, when I read this, I thought, well, I can't get up and tell him this. It's too easy. But you want to know what? Sometimes the truth is just really easy. I think that's why we forget about it sometimes. So let's look at Colossians 3, 1 through 4, what Paul says. Start with verses 1 and 2. He says this, since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. Let me ask you real quick, what are things above? Is it money, 401k, my kids' sports career? Or is it like, The gospel, heaven, God's kingdom, God's glory, his church here on the earth, right? Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then it says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. See, now in the original language, this is communicating that it wants to be a continual action. So imagine it said this way kind of in our modern language. Be obsessed with God and God's kingdom all the time. Don't stop thinking about it. Don't take your eyes off it. Keep it ever in front of you. Be obsessed. How often are we obsessed with God's kingdom? Well, here's a way to look at it. There's 10,080 minutes in a week. How many do we give God? There are 10,080 minutes. Minutes in a week. How many does God get? You see, sometimes we say, yeah, but you know, I don't hear from God. I mean, where is he? I call on him sometimes, but he didn't do anything. He doesn't say anything. But the problem is, is what we've done is we've taken an idol, and we've put it right in front of God, and then we say to ourselves, well, where is he? I can't even see him anywhere. But you want to know what's happening is the exact opposite thing. God is waiting with his arms open in heaven, graciously, patiently saying, Where are you? Where are you? I'm waiting for you. I love you. I'm here for you. If you call on me, I'll answer you. If you need me, I'll help you. But we can't hear him because we've got some dumb sports team or some big wallet idol, or whatever you want to call it, blocking our ears and blocking our eyes from seeing and hearing what God actually wants to say and actually wants to do in our lives. And yes, the truth is simple. Set your hearts on things above where God is seated at the right hand of the Father and set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Not on earthly things. What are we doing? So how do we do that? Well, it's pretty easy. See this idol here? Go like this. Yep. Oh, now I can see the cross. It's all about the cross, people. I love you guys. I need this message too. I'm sitting there in my office and I'm thinking, how did I forget about the cross? You see, when we forget that Jesus Christ saved a wretch like us, then we all of a sudden wander away from the cross. And then what happens? Oh, we find a new thing. And then we put that new thing in front of the cross. Jesus Christ is good. He is the one who's worthy of our praise. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, and tell me if this is a worthy thing to keep your eyes focused on. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. For when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So let me just encourage you about the gospel and about the cross real quick. This, so that we can be re-energized to have our focus put back on Jesus. When you look in your Bible and it says, For you have died, do you know what that means? It means that if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, that you have been joined with Christ, then that when he died on the cross, you died. You can't even die if you're a Christian. Did you know that? You just go from your body to the Lord. That's good news. That's something that I think can help me keep my eyes on Jesus. And then it says that your life is hidden with God in Christ. See, sometimes my son and I, Nehemiah, will get wrestling, and we will fight around and stuff, and then I'll take a big blanket and I'll just... Pick him up, and I'll hold him in that blanket. And you want to know what? He's hidden with me, and there's no place safer for him to be than in the arms of his loving father. And that's what God has done for us as well. He has picked us up, and he has hidden us with Christ in God. And then it tells us that when God appears, we appear with him in glory. He adopts us into his family. I mean, how could we take an idol? How could I take this dumb sports thing and sin about it? How could I take these things and put them in front of my God who's given me everything? Lord, forgive us. Lord, have mercy on us. Friends, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with God in Christ. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him. Lord, give us strength as Calvary Church to smash our idols. Put them to death so that we can keep our eyes on you and on the cross. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for this time. God, as hard as it is to hear these words that we are idolaters, we thank you that that's not the end of the story. God, I pray that the cross of Jesus Christ would be ever present in our sight lines so that we would never, ever, ever take our eyes off his work, that we would never, ever, ever take his, our eyes off what he's done for us. Oh, God, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, even an idolatrous one, Lord. So, God, I pray that if you've been speaking to people in this church, that they would be willing to do business with you today, that they would be willing to put to death the idols that they've erected in their lives because you love them. God, be merciful to us. We know you will be. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.